RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. I'm reading a sentence or a paragraph from a Herald report, a research report published by the Education Hub earlier in 2022 revealed that by the age of 15, 35.4% of teenagers struggle to read and write. That's right. 35.4% of teenagers struggle to read and write. Obviously, that's not very good. So to talk more about this, I want to welcome to RCR Dr. Michael Johnston, Senior Fellow at the New Zealand Initiative. He leads the work stream on education Dr. Johnston, thanks for coming on RCR. Great to have you. It's a great pleasure, Paul. Great to be here. Okay, so what's quickly, what's your background? What what do you bring to bear? Um, well, I, I came to this position via many stages. So I, I did my uh, undergraduate study in psychology and my PhD is in cognitive psychology, which is the science of human information processing. And it's interesting that when I was doing that, I was doing basic research on things like visual word recognition and reading and uh, how to help kids with dyslexia. And then I kind of left that realm for a while and I, I came back to New Zealand about 20 years ago and worked at NZQA for a while as a statistician. And then at that point, NCA was in a bit of a crisis just a few years after it had been introduced because there was all sorts of variability in the results of assessments over time and between subjects and it very nearly got undone. Uh, so I was there during a period when we were putting together better ways of marking exams and moderation for internal assessment and so on. Uh, I did that for about six years and we got we got quite a lot done. I think NCA retained some problems and we can talk about that if you like, but I think the exams at least were much more robust than they were at the start. So after that, I went to Victoria University where I was a senior lecturer in education for 10 years and wow. finished up being associate dean uh, before I, I came to the initiative about a year and a half ago. So since then, I've done a report on modern learning environments and another much more general one about all sorts of problems in our school system uh, and literacy and numeracy are amongst those problems. And uh, I've just finished with our adjunct fellow, Stephanie Martin, a report on uh, teacher education, which is going to be launched next week. So okay. that brings us up to date, I think. Yeah. yeah. No, that's right up to date. Okay, here's a bit of a, um old fart looking back here. But I remember back to my school days, we learned how to read and write, and uh, we learned all the times tables. We had to know them off by heart, and it was kind of boring, but we did it. Mm -hmm. I've never had any problem with literacy or, or numeracy to the level of getting by in society to, you know, working out taxes and things like that. I can do all that. So something, and, and and virtually everyone I know has never had a problem, so something worked back then, did it? Yeah, I think it really did. I, I mean, as you said, it might have been a bit boring, and I don't think we actually need to go back there, as it were. I, I think yeah. there are elements past that we should bring back, in particular structured learning. Things have become too dissolute and too diffuse in, in the classroom. Teachers are not given remotely enough guidance, either by the curriculum or by their training, to be ready to teach things like literacy and numeracy. We need to bring structure back. But the structure doesn't mean that it needs to be boring. And I think we can do better than we Well, did. it wasn't that bad. Actually, it wasn't that bad. It was enough for us to 
to pick up the knowledge and not sort of push back and yeah. I mean, I think it de- it depended on the teacher a bit. Uh, yeah, maybe there were better teachers, and that might be something you speak to reteacher training. Well, yeah, I, I mean, one thing that I've reflected on is that you know, unfortunately, in the mid twentieth century, able and intelligent women had quite huge career options, and a lot of them went into teaching. And now a lot of those women might be lawyers and doctors and many other things, and and that's that's great. Uh, but I do think it's it's cut off from the teaching profession one source of oh, so very, de- very deprived the sort of a particular group that might have otherwise bought the intellect and and power of their yeah. I mean, women who are now professors and, and scientists and all kinds of things, and you know, more power for them. That's great. But yeah, I, I, I think it did cost the teaching profession something. Well, the the other thing that was, uh, I'm not going to sit here reminiscing all the time, but the other thing that was different, I think, back then, and I was in in primary school, what, um, you know, about 50 years ago, just on, and there were probably about a 50-50 distribution male-female teachers. Now, you didn't muck around, you didn't, well, you didn't muck around with any teacher, but you certainly didn't muck around with the male teachers. Right, yes. You know. Some of them were fairly disciplinarian when I was They were. (laughs) I can think of a few. Hmm. And look, you know, again, I, I don't hold with whacking kids, and that happened a bit in the past, and that, that's that's not a good way to discipline anyone. But uh, I think now we've gone to an extreme where teachers have very few tools to keep order in in classrooms and in schools. That I think it's it's beyond doubt that the social problems that kids bring to school with them have multiplied. In the past couple of decades, I, I think it's very great challenge to even settle some classes enough for them to be able to learn. So I, I don't want anything I say as coming across as blaming teachers for the problems. But it, uh, a lot of them haven't been trained properly. That isn't their fault. A lot of them are working in very pressured environments with too little support. Uh, it's a very stressful job. It's a very, very difficult job to do well. And so, really, my hat is off to anyone who gives it a try. But we've we've sold our teachers short on the way they're trained, and we really need to get them trained in a way that gives them the tools to teach things like literacy and numeracy and other subjects well, and and in a way that will actually serve education, and which can end these cycles of disadvantage and poverty. But if you don't use those techniques it perpetuates those cycles well, well i see in, in the, stat, the stats that i was referring to before also included that um three out of five prisoners don't have nca level one yeah you know that's <laughs> there you go and, and level one is not a high bar and look you know i've, I've said this before our prisons are full of illiterate young men and that's yeah. that's dangerous right and that, that's, it's, it's, it is dangerous not to educate people properly. They, it, it opens, it, of course, you know, many people who don't succeed in education do go on to have successful lives, but some don't. And, and it does open them up to the risk of criminality and, and, and certainly poverty and disadvantage. Okay, well, we'll get to what's failing, you know, for the kids, but I think probably maybe it, it makes sense to talk first about what are the deficiencies in teacher training? Because that's where yeah. the rubber hits the road in the classroom. So is that up for some kind of reinvention? Yes. So, you know, between 25 and 15 years ago or so, 
the old teachers' colleges were merged with the universities. And now we have about 90% of our school teachers, primary and secondary, coming out of university programs. And there are a number of problems with the university model of teacher education. One is uh, simply that education is a small part, I mean, training teachers is a small part of what universities do. It was everything that teachers' colleges did. So now it's a... Yeah, one mission, right? One mission at the teachers' college. One mission. Whereas the the universities do all kinds of things. That's what they're there to do. But actually, teacher training is not a high prestige thing for universities like law and medicine. And it's a moderately expensive thing too. So it actually doesn't get a good deal from universities. So that's one issue. Another is that we have quite a disconnect between the theoretical or coursework components of teacher education and the time that teachers and training spend in the classroom practicing teaching. Uh, that, that's both a disconnect in time because they'll do a block of coursework and then go into the school for a few weeks. Uh, and also a, a disconnect in terms of the theoretical content sometimes being quite esoteric and it's not clear how you apply it in the classroom at all. Uh, I, I think teachers need to spend much more time in, teachers and training need to spend much more time in the classroom than they do. Uh, another problem is the support that they get when they are in the classroom from associate teachers. So these are the teachers who mentor and assess and look after them while they're on their practicum. And some of them are very good and some of them aren't. And in the end, there's a shortage of them. So often whoever puts their hand up will, will, will get the gig. But yeah. it, sometimes it doesn't work too well. Uh, and there's no rigorous assessment uh, and all of the pressure is on passing everybody just about. I mean, some people don't, but far too many people who are really not cut out for it uh, end up graduating and becoming teachers. And that's exacerbated by a teacher shortage, which we have at the moment. Schools can't get teachers for level money. And so the pressure is really on to... Is, is that a result of, again, women choosing other... Career paths. No, not so much. I mean, I mean, the teacher shortages come and go with population fluctuations. And at the moment, we've got a shortage. Sometimes we have a glut. Uh, so those that that is cyclical. Uh, right. Yeah. But I do think we need to make the teaching profession much more attractive to people who are currently going into other occupations. So how do you do that? How is well, that done? It has various parts. First of all, you know, you have to make it a, a, a profession that doesn't break people. And at the moment, teachers burn out a lot. I've got a PhD student. I'm still supervising some PhDs. And, and she's mm. looking into teacher burnout. She actually, you know, had a, a bad experience herself as a beginning teacher where she just couldn't cope with the pressures of the social problems and all of that and ended up leaving teaching quite early. And now she's trying to do some research on what the, the causes are and, and also how we can alleviate the problems. So that's one thing. We need to actually make sure that teaching is an attractive profession from the point of view of it being a, a, a reasonable expectations on teachers. But then yeah. we have to train them properly so that kids can learn. There's nothing more frustrating than trying to do a job that you haven't been well equipped to do. Um, does uh, that mean taking that training back out of universities and kind of resetting the older model of teacher training colleges, like one well, single purpose? 
I, I mean, I think, I think one single purpose is good. I, I don't think teaching, teachers' colleges were perfect either. I think we can do better than the past again. I think we, we can. And, and actually, I'd like to see uh, much more training done in schools oh, okay. and really almost by schools. But what you want is also trained teacher educators who, instead of relying on associate teachers who have put their hand up, having uh, people who are really worked on what it is to be a teacher and how well like inspectors or something that sort of that well no what i think of actually and... is there is a there's a crew in christchurch called new zealand graduate school of education that's dr kevin knight's organization and that they are an independent provider of teacher education uh, and they have a superb model so uh, teachers in training spend almost all of their time in classroom and people from the graduate school go in and coach them and mentor them and assess them against a long list of criteria. And they have to be fluent and consistent in quite specific acts of teaching before they, they, they can graduate. That would knock so the rough edges off pretty quick, wouldn't it? That would grind off right. the hard edges. I mean, it's hard work, but once yeah. they graduate, they're good teachers. You're they're good to go, good. right? Yeah. So I think that's a very nice model, and I'd like to see it replicated. Uh, just repeat so, um, that... Uh, that Institution or that setup that you just mentioned, just just so, so I can. The New Zealand Graduate School of Education, it's right. located in Christchurch. Yeah. Okay. okay. All right. And another so, piece to the yeah. Actually, carry on. Career structure. Yeah. I mean, at the moment, teachers get extra money each year, and then they get to the top of the scale, and that's it. And there's no performance evaluation that feeds into that. I would like to see a four-tier correct uh, structure to uh, teachers' careers. So. After they progress for a bit, they have to apply to go to the next level and then submit evidence about their goodness. And that, that way we'd actually reward good teachers. And I'm not talking about just, you know, testing and the ones who get high scores get promoted because it's more complex than that. It, it depends on the communities you're serving and the kids in front of you. But there are ways of doing it that are fair, but we really need to have Good teachers have an incentive to stay in the classroom through their careers. And as they ascend the, the, the tiers and the teaching structure, then it becomes their job to mentor younger teachers as well. So right. We, yeah. We, I think that would help and make it more of a prestigious thing because a top tier teacher should be seen in the same light as, as a lawyer or a doctor or, or other professionals. Yeah, I suppose if you if if you're incredible at what you do, and the person in the next classroom is an absolute shocker, you're still getting paid the same. You know, yeah. there's no differential right. at all, no recognition of your expertise, effort, skill. I mean, it's pretty demoralising, right. isn't it? That's right. And the, the best young people, you know, they should be in the profession and, and shooting up the ranks quickly. Yeah. Um, and some of the old wood, maybe you know, who aren't so. So great, and I mean some wonderful old teachers as well, and we should keep them and find them. But uh, the ones who have been around, they're just kind of waiting to retire. Should be encouraged to do so earlier rather than later. Right, free up a few dollars too, probably. Yeah. Okay, so let's. Um, the government has been making some announcements recently, quite uh, late in the piece, you'd have to say, because I know we've talked to Dr. Oliver Hartwich before. He's had this on his mind really badly as well. He says it's it's. Yeah. Basically, a train wreck is is how he he put it, and holding the country yeah. back. So we know about that. So they plan to, this is the Labor plan to mandate reading, writing, and maths 
core teaching requirements to ensure consistently consistency, regardless of which school a student attends. And that's the common practice model. Now, on the surface, that sounds like common sense, the common practice model. Great. In fact, why isn't it there already? But what, what's your view on that? Well, the reason it's not there already is because we've had this very decentralized approach to schools ever since the Tomorrow's Schools Initiative in the late 1980s. We've had this model where schools are independent. And that hasn't necessarily worked out well. Uh, it means that there's too little consistency across schools in, in how basic things like reading and mathematics and numeracy are taught. Uh, so I do support the idea of a common practice model. But of course, the critical part is getting that model right and using the best evidence-based approaches. And what I've seen of the common practice so model so far doesn't give me much confidence that that will be the case. Uh, and there are, there are slightly different problems for the literacy part than the numeracy part. And we can get into some of the details of that. Um, so really both literacy and numeracy uh, centering on what they call critical pedagogies. And pedagogy means, you know, the techniques of teaching. And what they mean by critical pedagogies, essentially teaching young people to be activists. So it's quite politically motivated. So they're looking at the relationship between literature or, or language and power or between numeracy and power. And, you know, a certain amount of that, I, I think, especially with, with reading novels and, and so on with teenagers might not be a bad thing, but really they want this to infuse everything from the very beginning. And so, so they're politicizing young kids yeah, is what they're, they're trying to do. Exactly. And why, 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 why? They're just kids. Well, I think it, yeah, that's right. I mean, for goodness sake, let them have some innocence. But yeah. I mean, it, even setting that aside, it, it makes learning more difficult and not easier. I mean, you, Imagine, put yourself in the position of a five-year-old. You've just come into school. You're meeting all these new things, like trying to figure out what these squiggles on the page mean. And that's an enormous cognitive task. We, we can't underestimate it. And there are good ways of helping them with that. And we can talk about that, structured literacy. Essentially, you know, you're starting with the, the mapping between spelling and sound and making sure that they understand that. And then they can start to sound out words. And at first, that's very effortful, but it gets more and more fluent. It, it doesn't take that long, really. It doesn't take that long once they get the hang of yeah. it, and then they're yeah. away. And yeah, we're wired for it. Well, we're not. We're not actually. We'll come back to that. We're, we're not? not wired for reading. No, we're wired for oral language. We're not wired ah, for reading. Okay, interesting. Think about yeah. it. You know, oral language has been around for as long as there have been human beings. Yeah. In fact, you could say it's a defining characteristic. It's effortless, really. Yeah. It's effortless because our brains are hardwired for it. We've evolved gotcha. to be yeah. language beings. Literacy, three and a half thousand years old, thereabouts. Okay. It's a technology. Yeah. It's something we early days. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, very powerful technology and it changed us in many ways. But our brains are not hardwired to become literate, which is okay. why it is effortful and difficult. Right, of course. But, yeah. You know, we can automatize it like any other skill. Once you get going with it, away you go. And this structured approach gives them immense leg up at the start, right? So, and the similar uh, considerations apply to numeracy. Again, learning arithmetic is not easy when you're starting at the beginning. 
And so again, a structured approach where you build layer on layer and make sure that each level is firm and, and in place before you try to build on it. Uh, that's that, that's a, a good way to make sure that nobody gets left behind. But if we if we don't do it in a structured way, and even worse, if we pile on this kind of politicization from the very start, it just makes it more complicated. I mean, setting aside the whole ethics of politicizing children, it makes it a more difficult learning task. Why would we do that? So, that, you know, it's the worst of all worlds by the sounds of things. I, I think it pretty much is. I really do not like the look of this, this common practice model they've got. I mean, another Okay, so, so that will involve that sort of political dimension associating, like you say, um, well, literacy, maybe numeracy as well, with some somewhere on the spectrum of of, of power. Of... Yeah. Okay, well... Hmm. I mean, I, I, I'll just quote a little bit from the, the maths, uh, the numeracy sure. common practice model. It says they want kids to challenge the notion that maths is benign, neutral, and culture-free. Well, what does... <laughs> What does that mean? When you're at how much you gross, what, what, what I think it means is, and I do actually know a bit about this because I, I wrote about it a few weeks ago for, for one of our columns. Right. And it comes out of this Canadian organisation. I kid you not, they claim that insisting that two plus two equals four might be racist. Oh, my golly. Really? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Now, the common practice model doesn't say that, but it... it it has a lot of ideology in common with these people. So there are some real nutters. So it's been hijacked. Around this thing's been hijacked. No, I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Okay. So uh, so the common practice model sounds good, but actually it just means well, that everybody gets brainwashed the same way. <laughs> if the common practice model was based on the science of learning, the science of human information processing, what we know about human memory, attention, and perception, and built teaching techniques out of that, it would be an excellent thing, and I would be all for it. And so I do want to see a consistent yep. approach taken, but it needs to be the right consistent approach, or we just make things worse and not better. Well, the quote I have here from the education spokesperson of Labor, Jane Tanetti, is Jane the common... Minister of Education. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah Minister of Education, sorry that the common practice model would ensure all young people got the same education regardless of where they went to school. It doesn't say anything about getting a good education, does it? It doesn't seem to, no. I, I, they may get the same education and it would be pretty dismal if they do. If, if this, if it, and look, you know, this model hasn't been implemented yet. I'm rather hopeful that things may change. Uh, there might be a change of government in October and a different minister may have a different view of what we should be doing. So... Uh, things may change. There is hope yet. Uh, and actually, even if there isn't a change of government, I actually think teachers would rebel when they saw this. Uh, I don't think they'd know what to do with it. And if they can't make sense of it, then how can they teach it? And, and after a, a few short years, we would see our already pretty dismal literacy and numeracy data getting worse still. Um, so let's hope we don't end up with that and that actually we do have a common practice model based on the science of learning. Do you see any political position from any of the election in under two months? Um, any yeah. policy? I haven't seen much policy being talked about um, out there in the mainstream. I haven't been searching around for it. But uh, uh, are any of the parties that have any sort of chance making 
or saying the right things, making the right noises, as far as you're concerned? Yeah, I've seen some good things from Erica Stanford, the national uh, education spokesperson. She she's got uh, the idea with this with structured literacy. I think she's pretty keen on implementing that as the, as the common practice model. Uh, and if she can see the value of structured literacy, then I think she'll probably see the value of structured numeracy as well. So I am hopeful that we could get um, something quite good if she becomes minister. Will the empire try and strike back, though? There's a lot of entrenched views in there, uh, cultural sort of um, elements to the education system that's built up over time. Um, yeah, but you know, I don't want to do a, a lot of people there. Uh, a lot so, of them so won't she, like this. Yeah, a lot of uh, the the kind of ac academics and and perhaps bureaucrats might not, but teachers are ultimately pragmatic people, and I can certainly see why they would resist change at first because change, especially when you're working in a stressful and busy environment, isn't a lot of fun. But the minute they see it's working for kids. A vast majority of teachers will get on board because they want to see their kids learn, and, right. and that that is what lifts their morale. And and actually, a lot of schools have already adopted structured literacy spontaneously. They've got in consultants and they've trained their teachers. And I've I've talked to schools where they've done this, and they do comment that at first they do get pushback, but after they start to see it working, everybody jumps on board very quickly, and and it becomes an exciting thing. So. I, I do think we'll, we will see change. And the, the only thing that could wreck it is a common practice model that ruled it out. Uh, yeah. Because schools would be forced to use techniques that don't work. But if we, even if we just maintain the status quo, I think we will get there with structured literacy because schools will drive the change. Any sign of parents? They've got the skin in the game. Parents pushing back en masse as well, uh, demanding better outcomes for for kids because that's a high figure 30 what is it 35.4 yeah. 34.35.4 struggle to read and write teenagers that's well of course you know parents best chance to push back comes up in about a month yep okay and of course i'm sure many parents uh is quiet about what they're seeing in their schools or not seeing and maybe wondering what their kids are doing all day in, in class and not seeing a lot of progress for them. Yeah. Uh, but what do they do about it? I mean, they, parents are not education experts. So, and again, this is what something that exacerbates the socioeconomic divide in education. Because first of all, you know, highly educated parents who are probably earning well, you know, they're, they're probably more likely to notice a problem and have the resources to do something about it. Offset it, yeah. Kids to read themselves or hiring a tutor or whatever it is. In in disadvantaged communities, that that's not so easy. They haven't got the money, and and they don't necessarily have the expertise to to be able to do it for themselves. So it actually makes things a lot worse in terms of inequality if we don't use the best teaching approaches in our schools. We've had uh, quite a few people on our station since we've been on air for the last five months who have you know gone the homeschooling route. Right. And it's it's yeah. been for some, and not all of them are wealthy. Believe me, and it's been quite a, yeah. a an impact on them. But they seem to be incredibly positive about the results, you know, and yeah. um, and they're doing well. And and I, I believe them, you know, I, I do. Um, well, look, I, I wouldn't knock it. Uh, 
I, I would say it's obviously a huge commitment from parents to be able to do that. Not every parent is in a, in a situation where they can, but if you're set up to do it, uh, why not? Especially if you think you'll get a better result than the school. Well, that's the thing. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. isn't a very high bar at the moment. Okay. All right. Is there anything more that you want to say regarding this? Have we kind of covered it in the, okay, we haven't got all day to talk about it, but are there any other parts of this that you think we need to know about? No, look, I, I think we've covered most of it. There's one other thing actually in the, in the common practice model about literacy that's worth mentioning, which is the idea of multiliteracies. And this introduces another element of confusion. So they say that things like um, visual art and even gesture can be literate, right? So it's moving away from the idea that literacy is reading and writing towards oral language being literacy or dance being literacy. And that to me is a, a, it introduces immense confusion. We really ought to reserve the term literacy for reading and writing, or at least see reading and writing as being something that is absolutely essential and as I said before, oral language and literacy are two different things because we're biologically yeah. evolved for oral language. We are not for literacy, and so it's much more effortful to learn. And we mustn't confuse those things, much less bring in things like dance and so on. And say that that Is that trying to lower the bar so everybody sort of gets a prize? It's hard to know. I think it's being done in the, in the name of cultural responsiveness. So some idea that, you know, Pacific Island children like dancing or something. I mean, I mean it all seems a bit racist. We still got to read though. To make to make assumptions about what kids are, uh, need on the basis of what their, are you going to do? Their, Come and uh, and communicate something by da dancing, like mad. It's mad, you know. And again, they they're overrepresented in in disadvantaged communities, and we, to lift them out of that, we've got to give them the tools, and that means yeah. absolutely making sure they can all. They're more than anyone right probably out. high priority. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, dear. So All right. So we yep. get a more sensible common practice model. Yeah, sen sensible being the key word there. Okay. Well, Dr. Michael Johnston, Senior Fellow at the New Zealand Initiative, thank you for coming on and talking about that. It's really interesting. It's been a great pleasure, Paul. Thank you for having me. RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio.